Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, this fall, we have been uh, preaching a sermon series in Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. Uh, In uh, in this letter, uh, in your Bible as Galatians, uh, Paul is doing a lot of work with the Galatians to clarify for them what the message of the gospel is, what the Christian message uh, consists of. He had planted this church about three years ago, and in the intervening three years, they'd come to believe all kinds of different things. Uh, what he calls false gospels. And so Galatians is a great opportunity for all of us to get back to hear uh, the core proclamation of Christianity, the core of what Christians believe and seek to see in the world. And so uh, today we are in Galatians chapter 2. If you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Galatians 2 verses 1 through 14. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Thanks, Cynthia. You can be seated. So in the year 1969, as uh, throughout the U.S., uh, our nation worked through desegregation. 
the end uh, of the Jim Crow laws and these things, uh, one of the symbolic flashpoints for desegregation uh, became public swimming pools. Most pools, most public pools in the South uh, had been uh, segregated by color, whites only. And this became an area of contention as uh, the white population of the South continued to resist uh, the integration of public swimming pools. One place, uh, one thing that became common in this era, we'd had sit-ins and stand-ins. And so in the late 60s, we saw swim-ins where uh, African-American and Caucasian-Americans would go together to a segregated pool to, to attempt to swim together. Tragically, we saw uh, in a pool not far from here in St. Augustine, a swim-in that aroused violence as the owner of a local motel, uh, while the swimmers were in the pool, went and uh, sprinkled acid in the pool to drive them out. This was a, a contentious and symbolic flashpoint that became symbolic of the lingering segregation of our nation. Fred Rogers, uh, or Mr. Rogers, as he's uh, known to most of us, uh, wanted to make a statement about this. Uh, you can see this. We're in a season of Mr. Rogers. There was a, there was a documentary about a year ago. Tom Hanks is going to play him in an upcoming movie. Um, but anyway, there was this moment in Mr. Rogers' life in 1969 where he wanted to make a statement about this. And so he and his friend, Francois Clemens, uh, better known for uh, Mr. Rogers' aficionados as Officer Clemens, uh, in a very simple scene, sought to speak to this. Mr. Rogers sat with his feet uh, in a kiddie pool, bathing his feet, and then Officer Clemens came by, and he invited Officer Clemens to take his shoes off after a long day of working his beat, take his shoes off, roll up his pants, and wash his feet in the pool. And so these two grown men sat with their feet in a kiddie pool, splashing with each other. And then when they were done, uh, Mr. Rogers got up and he took a towel and he dried his feet and he kneeled and he, and he, drew, uh, he dried Officer Clemens' feet. In an image, uh, Mr. Rogers was also an ordained Presbyterian minister. Uh, and you can't see the scene without thinking of the biblical image of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. But what uh, Rogers and Clemens, two dear friends who met in a church in Pittsburgh, what they wanted to communicate, uh, to a nation full of children was that there was nothing to fear with sharing together, right? That, that, there was, there, that they, could, they could be in a pool together, they could wash together, there wasn't a clean and unclean thing, that, that they could just be together in that way. What they wanted to do was take what had become a symbol of exclusion, the pool, and turn it into a symbol of embrace, a place where they could be together. Now, these two Christian men learned that idea of turning a symbol of exclusion into a symbol of embrace from Jesus himself. It was one of the things that we see most obviously in Jesus's ministry. One of the themes that runs throughout Jesus's ministry and continually gets him in trouble uh, with the religious leaders of his day was the way that he took one prominent symbol of exclusion, the dinner table, the table around which people sat and ate. He turned it from a symbol of exclusion to a symbol of embrace, right? There was the, the, the dining table uh, was the place in Israel's life where there was a hard division between the clean and the unclean, where Jews did not eat with Gentiles because their food practices were different. They ate weird foods that Jews didn't eat. 
Their customs were different. The way they went about their meals was different. So Jews didn't eat with Gentiles. Uh, So within Israel, the righteous, saintly people didn't eat with those they perceived to be outcasts or sinners. And so Jesus, in the way that he ate his meals, communicated volumes. We see this scene in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus calls his his, uh, disciple Matthew, who had been a tax collector, one of the most notorious Uh, notoriously sinful and despised occupations in Israel. Jesus says, follow him, and he rose and followed him. This is Matthew chapter 9, verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at the table in his house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus takes the dinner table, which had been a symbol of exclusion, and transforms it into a symbol of his embrace. That's that's why what we see here happen in Antioch is such a big deal. Right, you, you may notice you're just reading along with the story and, and Peter makes a trip and Paul makes a trip. Paul goes to Jerusalem and then all of a sudden they're there in Antioch together and we hear of Paul, right, one of the founders of Christi- uh, the Christian church, uh, the author of much of the New Testament, speaking to Peter uh, here called Cephas. So two of the founders of Christianity, Paul goes to him and says, uh, and writes as he's telling this story in Galatians chapter 2, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Right, these are strong words. This is escalating quickly, uh, this disagreement between Peter and Paul. And it's because of how high the stakes are in Paul's mind. It's because he recognizes that in the church, the table is meant to be a symbol of inclusion and embrace. And here's Peter refusing to to sit and to eat with Gentiles, with non-Jewish people who'd converted to Christianity. Peter's unwilling to eat with them, and so he leaves. And so why Paul is getting so heated about this, why he's calling Peter out so much, is because he sees something that's foundational to the church breaking down. The way the church was meant to work is that the table of Jesus was meant to transform all of the tables of this world, knitting back together the fractured human family. But instead, what what Paul finds Peter doing is it going exactly the opposite way. The tables of this world, where Jew and Gentile eat separately, is starting to corrupt and to change the table of the church so that there's division where there should be unity, where there's prejudice, where there should be acceptance. And so... Paul gets quite animated about this. And so we want to look just really uh, simply at two things. What is the problem with what's happening in Antioch? And then what is Paul's proposed solution to it? What's the problem? How do we diagnose it? And then what does uh, Paul suggest is the solution? Well, the problem, as we run into it here, the problem in Peter's heart, is that he simply can't move past his ideas about who is clean and who is unclean. Right? Peter operated with a pretty set, rigid grid 
that there are certain people who are considered clean and there are certain people who are considered unclean. And it's the job of the clean people to keep their distance from people that they view as being unclean. We can view Peter with some sympathy here because this was the world that Peter lived in. This was the category that framed Peter's social imagination. His entire life as a faithful Israelite, he lived with a division between Israelites and everyone else around them. Right? Israel's story in so many ways from the days of Abraham on was the story of God choosing a people to be his people, him giving them his commandments for how they ought to live and order their lives. And that, that way of life that Israel lived was always out of step with their neighbors. Whether it was the Canaanite neighbors that they moved into the promised land around, people who were uh, doing things like sacrificing their children uh, to multiple gods, Right? Israel was called to worship their one God in a different way, and that created a difference. Or whether it was their different way of life when surrounded by the Babylonians and the Assyrians. Or now, in Peter's day, the difference between their life and the Romans and the Greeks. Right? That their life was different than those around them, and that was by design in so many ways. That they would be a monotheistic people, worshiping one God when people worshiped many gods. Uh, that they would be a people, as we, as we read earlier, who looked out for the orphan and the widow and the poor in a world where so many around them didn't. That they would be a people whose kings didn't rule with absolute power, but who were held into account by God in a world where so many kings acted as dictators. Right? That they were to be different. And so this uh, was the world that Peter lived in. It's the world that he grew up in. It's the way that he learned uh, to see the world around him. Right? When he was at home, his parents probably told uh, Gentile jokes, right? About, man, aren't we glad we're not like those crazy Gentiles? Aren't we glad we don't eat? Have you seen the disgusting foods that they eat? Have you seen the weird ways that they keep their hair? Have you seen the strange practices that they have? Peter, his entire life, probably never had a single close Gentile friend. He may have lived life around them. He may have, certainly, he saw Roman soldiers in and out of town. But he probably never had any Gentile, any non-Jew that he would count as a close personal friend. And so imagine, so, and then, you know, if that wasn't enough, Peter, remember, he was called by Jesus uh, to leave his entire life, to leave his fishing business and follow him as a disciple. He hitched everything to Jesus, and then he watched Gentiles, these strange people who he viewed with such suspicion. He watched Gentiles crucify. His, his Messiah, his closest friend, crucified by the Romans. So Peter's animosity towards the Gentiles was long, it was deep-seated, and it was stoked by the recent events of his life. And so Peter's world is going through a phenomenal amount of change in the years since Jesus' death and resurrection. Christianity started really as an offshoot out of Judaism. Right? The Romans viewed Christians as essentially a new sect, a new, a new kind of outcropping of Judaism. Peter likely viewed Christianity as a continued outgrowth of Judaism. That we were going to be, we're still going to be Jews, but we're going to be the ones that recognize Jesus. But we can still keep our practices, right? We're still going to be the ones who are circumcised when our neighbors aren't. We're still going to be the ones who keep kosher when others don't. We're still going to keep our ethnic and cultural identity around this. 
And so imagine Peter's shock. As the gospel goes forward, as the message about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection goes forward, the surprising turn that happens, which is that there are certainly some within Israel, certainly some Jews who believe, right? The church in Jerusalem after Pentecost does begin to grow. But then as the message goes out from Israel, as men like Paul take the message to places like Antioch, to places like Galatia, a strange thing happens, which is that as they preach the gospel in the synagogues, the Jewish diaspora, the Jews who are scattered around the Greek world, some of them do believe, but most of them resist. Most of them look at Paul and Barnabas as though they're, uh, they're, as though they're heretics, claiming that Jesus is the divine son. But surprisingly, many Gentiles do believe. These strange Greeks and Romans and Turks, these people with weird practices who ate funny food and who are uncircumcised, they start to believe. They start to come into the church. And so now Peter is faced with a new reality. He's faced with the reality that the church that he thought he had doesn't look like he thought it was going to look. Uh, that his community is starting to look utterly different. And God being patient and long-suffering, goes to deep lengths to teach Peter this lesson. You can look at it in Acts chapter 10. Uh, God tells Peter, he says, go over to this Roman centurion's house. The Romans who are still persecuting the church at this point. Go to his house and you're going to have a vision. So he goes to this Gentile's house and to paraphrase, uh, he goes to the roof. Uh, God gives him a vision of a sheet opening up in front of him. And in that sheet is all of what we would say the amazing and delicious food uh, that Peter had never been allowed to eat. Shellfish, those were off the list. And all of a sudden, here they all are, you know, lobsters and crabs and shrimp and crawfish and all the, all the delicious crustaceans that we enjoy here in Florida. Pork chops and bacon, Right? <laughs> It's the, the most lively y'all have been, right, is, is the mention of bacon. So, so God lays this out, this, this virtual buffet before Peter, and he says, take and eat. Right? Look at the links that God is going to to show Peter. Look, you've been thinking about clean and unclean all wrong. Right? Things are different. Things are changing, and you need to change with it. But what we see in this story is that those, uh, those old ideas in Peter, are deep, and they're calcified, and they don't break easily, right? That this level of change, this level of change prompts a level of anxiety in Peter that's not easily gotten over, right? We see this even in our own world uh, oftentimes, don't we, right? We see the anxiety that comes when people look around and recognize that their communities are changing. Right, we've seen this in our own city uh, through the patterns of white flight uh, that have happened throughout our throughout our history. Right, that as people's neighborhoods start changing, as people look around and everybody doesn't look like them, everybody doesn't act like them. That there's a there's a movement out of those neighborhoods. We'd rather live with those that we recognize, those who seem like us. Right, we see that happening again in reverse in many ways among many things. What happens when gentrification happens? We see all of a sudden a neighborhood starts to again change demographically or ethnically and uh, the people who had been there start to move out. Right, there's something in the human psyche that's drawn towards the safety of being with people that you know, people that you like, people that seem to you like the people you grew up with. 
Right, we see, haven't we, over the last decade in our nation as our nation's demographics change. Right, we're no longer living in a majority. We no longer, at least in the next 10 years, won't be in a nation that's majority white Protestant. Right, for most of American history, the, pre the predominant demographic uh, was Protestant Christians of European descent. That's already, that's, that's now a plural, uh, it's the largest of a plurality, but it's no longer a majority. And by 2040, it will be a minority, right? And it's no coincidence that as those demographics change, because change can be hard, that we see a backlash, right? That we see a rise in things like uh, white nationalism, in acts of racial violence. All of that is ticked up because we look around and we see communities changing. There's something that in some ways is natural, but in all ways is sinful, that refuses to change our old ideas, about who our people are. And so what Peter's having a hard time doing, he already lived in a world uh, in which uh, it was very cosmopolitan. If you walked into a typical Roman city, you would have seen people of all different colors, all different faiths, all different uh, ways of life. But now his people, the church was starting to look different. And Peter is having a hard time with that. He's having a hard time changing who he means when he says we. Right, who his us is, who his our people are, is getting pressed, and he's having a hard time changing it. All right, so let's move this, and we already have a little bit, but out of the realm of Jew and Gentile, uh, and into the world, um, into our world, right, where we still do oftentimes look at one another with prejudice, right? It's, whether it's Jew, Gentile uh, in the first century, or whether it's uh, Korean and Japanese in today's world, whether it's Hutus and Tutsis in Rwanda, uh, whether it's Irish and English, right? We, whether it's white and black, we still tend to live in these worlds where we view people like us as clean, people like us as normal, and those who are unlike us as either unclean, different, or other than. And so we view one another oftentimes with the eyes of prejudice. Racial prejudice is any view that looks at people of another race or culture as inferior to another, right? Sometimes it's outwardly obvious and looks like hatred, looks like name-calling, looks like even violence. Other times it's more passive. Other times it's just a, a polite agreement to keep our distance, to not live our lives too closely with one another. Maybe it's subtle eye rolls about the way that those people are. Maybe it's the way that you joke and laugh and talk when you're with people that look like you versus the way you do when you're with people who don't. But it's the same dynamic. People haven't changed that much in the last 2,000 years. It's the same basic dynamic that Peter's living in. And I love the way that Paul confronts him. I love it because Paul doesn't come to him and say, Peter, stop being racist. Right? That would be the easiest thing. I mean, I think that might be what I would do. Right? Peter, stop it. Right? You're being bigoted. You're being a coward. You're acting one way when people are around. You're acting another way when they're not. Stop it. But instead, what Paul does is he comes to him and he frames the issue. So Paul's solution to the problem is he frames the issue and he says that he sees that their conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. Their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. 
Paul says to Peter, Peter, your problem is that your lifestyle shows that you don't believe the gospel. Right? He didn't hear Peter teach heretical things. He didn't see Peter commit some crass immorality. What he saw Peter doing was that his social world was still framed more by his old ways than framed by the gospel. And so he he looks at Peter because of the ways that Peter's eating and who he's eating with. And he says, Peter, your life is showing that you are out of step with the gospel. You don't quite get it yet. Until the gospel changes who you eat with, you don't quite understand it yet. And so Paul comes to him and he says, Peter, you need to believe the gospel. You need to let what is in here somewhere get into your heart, and then it needs to work its way out into the way that you relate with your brothers and sisters in this new family that is the church. Peter, you have a gospel problem. This is important for us to see that Paul says that racism, that prejudice, that judgment uh, is an issue of the gospel. It's about not understanding the full implications or weight of the gospel. Now, there's real concern uh, among many conservative Christians, among evangelical Christians, who want to be sure that the gospel doesn't morph into the social gospel. Uh, and to spare you a rather long history lesson, that is a real threat, right? There was a movement in the 20th century as many of the mainline churches were liberalizing, starting to rethink their basic beliefs about the Bible and the resurrection and things like that, where in many of the pulpits in our nation, uh, you are more likely to walk in and hear a socialized message, a message about how Jesus opposes things like poverty and racism and war, than you were to hear a sermon about the resurrection or the need for repentance and faith. And so that's a real danger, right? If you grew up through that phase and you remember all of a sudden you go to church and when you used to hear about the gospel, now you were hearing, you know, you're more likely to hear a sermon against the Vietnam War than you were to hear a sermon about the need for personal salvation through faith. You're aware that there's a real danger of taking out the supernatural, uncomfortable, salvific thrust of the gospel for a social message. But sometimes out of fear for that, we've turned a deaf ear to the clear social implications of the gospel, right? That the gospel is, it's not simply a spiritual message about where you go when you die. That it is a comprehensive message about what God is doing in the world, transforming all things, everything that's broken being healed, everything that's that's sick being made new including the relationships between one another, starting in the church and then radiating out to the world, right? And so while we want to be careful about not reducing the gospel to a social gospel, we also want to be careful about not reducing the gospel down to a message that concerns only our hearts or our spiritual life without implication for our social or relational world, right? If that's all that the gospel was, Paul would not have said to Peter, Peter, you're not living in line with the gospel. You're not keeping in step with the gospel. You're sinning, and you need to repent, and you need to amend your ways. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, I love this, especially in light of our morning together today. 
In Galatians 3.27, Paul's going to go on uh, to say this. This is later in the same letter. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. We think uh, Paul quotes this basic formula several times throughout the New Testament. And we think that what he's offering here is a basic early Christian baptismal formula. So it's a part of their liturgy. It's something that they would have said at a moment like we just celebrated when they were baptizing someone into the faith. That as many of you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Therefore, there is no more Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. And so what, what Paul's getting at in that and what the church was getting at in that is not that, that being in Christ eradicates difference, right? I mean, when you get baptized, you don't become androgynous, right? There's still biologically male and female. There's still gender. There's, you know, all of that's still true. You don't lose your culture, right? If, if you were white when you got baptized, you're going to be white after. If you were black when you got baptized, you're going to be black after. Right? That coming into Christ isn't about losing our social or cultural or racial identities. Right? If you're in Christ, you will rise from the dead with skin on. Right? You're not, we're not all going to be resurrected taupe or something where we just all, look, all of a sudden look alike. Right? You will be resurrected in your body your black body, your white body, your Latino body. The gifts of every culture of the earth will stream into the new heavens and new earth. The productions of black culture and white culture and Latino culture and Asian culture will find their fullness in the new Jerusalem. Right, so it's not about losing our identity. It's not about all of a sudden all becoming one or our differences being wiped out. But all of those differences coming into one new family where they can illumine one another, where they can shape one another, where they can see one another for who we truly are. These pairs that Paul quotes, neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, uh, if it's not about the eradication of difference, what's it about? In 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 the mind of Paul's audience, these were not neutral pairs of words. These were clear pairings where there was one group that was worth more than the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Everybody in the ancient world knew that it was better to be a man than a woman. Right? That was not a de- was just, in their world, that was just that was how they lived. Men had more rights, uh, men had more power, men had more wealth. Um, so when they say male or female, that was an ordered pair where one was worth more than the other. Slave or free, that was an ordered pair where one was worth more than the other. Everybody knows that you'd rather be a free person than a slave. And Jew and Gentile was an ordered pair where there was one that you would want to be and one that, where you wouldn't want to be it. And if you were a Jew, you would definitely not want to be a Gentile. More than anything else, you, were, you took pride in who you were. And so what Paul's saying here, it's not the eradication of difference, but it's the eradication of every human value system that places worth on one group of people at the expense of taking it away from another group of people. The gospel causes us to fundamentally rethink the way we think about human worth. That there's not some people who are worth more than others. There's not some people who are better than others. There's not some people who earn their way to God through either their culture, their ethnicity, even their good deeds, their righteousness, their moralism. 
that there is no worthy group and unworthy group, but that in Christ, the ground is level, that every one of us is a sinner, Every one of us, uh, in using the clean-unclean diagnostic, every one of us brings our own uncleanness. And it's not our culture, it's not our race, it's our sin. Peter should have gotten this. right? Remember, Peter's the one who Jesus washed his feet and said that anyone who's been washed is clean. There is no more clean or unclean, but all are clean in Christ. And so, friends, until the gospel changes who we eat our meals with, who we share our lives with, we haven't yet truly understood it. I'll never forget walking, uh, I used to do youth ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. And I remember this is in early 2000s, so 40 plus years after the civil rights movement, if you're keeping track at home. I remember walking into the lunchroom of a Memphis City High School. Uh, a, city, a, a school that was roughly 50% white, 50% black. I remember walking into the lunchroom and looking to one side. It was literally like you walked in, looked to one side of the door, and all of the black kids were sitting together. You looked to the other side, to the other side of the door, and all the white kids were sitting together. And there was no longer anybody there saying, black people to this side, white people to this side. But it was the enculturated norms that they grew up with. It was what they knew was that light clusters with light. Sadly, many, not all, but many of those kids, if this was on a Monday, the Sunday before that, many of those kids were in a Christian church, right? That the gospel had not yet affected who they ate their meals with, who they chose to make friends with, who they chose to do life with. And friends, there there is no difference between Memphis and Jacksonville uh, when you think about racial dynamics, really. Um, It was visible in a lunchroom like that. But if you look at our city, if you look at where we live, who we do life with, how we eat our meals, it, if you could see it visualized that clearly, you'd see that it's still that stark. And so if we want things to change, if we want anything to change in our world and our city, it has to start uh, with our own lives, with our own hearts, with our own tables. Let's think backwards from the big to the small, right? I think we can all agree that we would love to live in a world. We'd love to live in a city. Uh, where opportunity was more equal, where whatever neighborhood you were born into, whatever family you were born into, that every child had a chance to grow up in safety with opportunities to succeed, right? We'd love to see a city uh, where prejudice was stripped out of it, where inequality was stripped out of it. And if we want that kind of city, I'm absolutely convinced that the single most important thing that we can do is to plant churches and to be a church where that happens. Uh, a multi-everything church, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-generational, right, where we live life together, where we learn to live our lives together in one family of faith, right? Actually, I don't just, I don't just claim it on my own. There's research that backs that up. Uh, in Michael Emerson and Christian Smith's book, Divided by Faith, they showed that the single most uh, important factor in whether or not a person held to racialized ideas or didn't hold to such ideas was whether or not they were a part of a multi-ethnic church. That actually being in relationship with one another in the family of faith has more power than almost anything else to change our hearts and our minds about how we look at difference. Not only that, but I think it's important if we're going to truly be a credible witness to the gospel in our city, 
Leslie Newbegin put it this way, a gospel of reconciliation can only be communicated by a reconciled fellowship. Right, if we claim that God is a God of reconciling grace, but we do it from the comforts of our white churches and Asian churches and black churches and Latino churches, the world's gonna look at us and say, I don't believe you. If God is a God of reconciling, why do you look so unreconciled? And so we long, we pray, we strive to be a church of that kind of reconciliation. But if that's gonna happen, uh, the church is you and the church is me. Right? We don't talk about wanting a, a reconciled church and then go, okay, man, well, I hope they figure out how to do that. <laughs> I guess they're talking mostly about our music. I guess they're talking mostly about how we advertise or how many, you know, what colors of people are on the website. Right? No. That is not how a multiracial, multicultural reconciliation church is built. It's built through the lives of its people. Right? The reality is that every church not talking about our church, or every church grows through relational networks. Every church grows as people make friends, as you live your life, and you go to every place that you live, work, and play, and you invite people. You invite people into Christ. You invite people into your church. That's how, churches, that's how church happens. And if uh, that only happens with people who are racially or culturally like you, then our church, by the just good and necessary consequence, will look like it does now, just bigger. And I'm a pastor. I like bigger. But we will have failed in a fundamental way if we just continue to hum along in the same old, same old way. So we need to look at our lives. Look at our tables. Right? Let's say you ate, in a good week, I like to think that I ate 21 meals a day. No, no. Uh, <laughs> 20, man, uh, 21 meals over the course of my week, right? On a, good, on a good day, I get three meals a day. Imagine you're the table of your week, the people that you ate with over this past week, the 21, hopefully, meals that you sat down to. And each, each seat down the table is somebody that you ate a meal with this week. What does that table look like? Does that table look like you? Does that table start to look maybe like our city? Does that table strive to look like the kingdom of God? This is hard, friends. Uh, it should feel overwhelming to you a little bit. You should hear that and go, oh man, that sounds like hard work. That sounds like relational work. It sounds like theological work. That sounds like sacrifice. That sounds like me, you know, reaching out to a coworker, a friend from the gym, somebody I don't know well and saying, hey, you want to grab lunch? And when grown men do that to one another, it's weird and you'll get looked at funny, right? It's hard to make new friends as an adult, no matter, regardless of difference. But it's going to take that kind of risk. Because friends, until the gospel changes who we eat with, we haven't gotten it. Until the table of Jesus begins to reshape the tables of our lives, we show that it's only gotten a little bit into our hearts. It has to change us at a social and relational level. You know, it's almost laughable, if it wasn't so sad, that Peter, of all people, should have come to a point where he used a meal as a symbol of exclusion. Right? Remember, Peter is not exactly a model citizen in the kingdom of God. Uh, Peter was the one who promised Jesus, no matter what happens, I will never betray you. And then three times during Jesus' trial and arrest, he did. 
He was running like a coward while Jesus was dying. How did, how did Jesus react to Peter? In his guilt, in his uncleanness, in his wrongness. He actually cooked a meal for him. John 21 tells us Jesus, Peter was out fishing. Jesus made a fire, grilled some fish, and invited Peter to come and sit down with him. Restored, embraced. Once we feel that, once we know that our standing with God is one of embrace, not because we're good, not because we're right, not because we've earned it, but sheerly because he wants us, because he desires fellowship with us, then our lives, our tables, can never be a symbol of exclusion, but only of embrace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do look to you as the one, the only one, who can knit back together what we have fractured in this world. True reconciliation uh, doesn't come through politics, uh, Lord knows. Uh, it doesn't come through, uh, through our best intentions. It doesn't come through our best work towards diversity. It only comes through the healing power of the gospel. It only comes as we come together, men and women, black and white, rich and poor, at the foot of the cross, confessing our sin, receiving your grace, and extending it to one another. Lord, we pray that we would be such a reconciled community, that we would be a beacon of your reconciling grace to the world around us. Lord Jesus, do this, we pray. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.